Well, this morning we are uh, continuing on in a short four-week series out of the book of Philippians. Uh, we're calling the series Courageous. Uh, this is my favorite letter from the Apostle Paul. It is known as the Letter of Joy. Uh, however, there is this theme of courage uh, that you see throughout it. And last week when we gathered, we talked about the need to have the courage to be gracious, to extend to other people what God in Christ Jesus has first extended to us. Today we're going to talk about the courage to be last. And no, I'm not talking about football here, all right? If I was, you Cleveland Browns fans would be excited because the courage to be last, you got that courage, right? I can pick on you. I'm a Bills fan. Although you beat Cincy last week, which means you're going to the Super Bowl, right, Nate? We're going to the Super Bowl. Now, the courage to be last, what are we talking about? Uh, The courage to be last we're talking about is going to be the way we interact with one another, the way we perceive ourselves and the way we perceive other people within community. And the Apostle Paul is going to be our guide. He's really been our guide all, all fall, hasn't he, with Romans and now into Philippians. But I'm going to read the first five verses out of the opening of uh, chapter 2 in Philippians. Uh, just for those of you who are, you know, church history buffs or, or you want to be one, um, Philippians 2 is, is actually uh, holds what is known as the oldest church hymn. It's called the Christ hymn. And today we're going to look at the first part of this, this passage, and next week we'll actually get into the Christ hymn as we talk about the life of Jesus. But, but the title for this passage of Scripture is Imitating Christ's Humility. What does that look like? Here it is. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And to finish it off, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I ask in the midst of these next few moments as I offer reflection on your life-giving word that you would bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be of profit to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I was preparing for the, uh, this past week for this particular message, it reminded me of an illustration I shared a couple of years ago in church uh, that came out of a congregation in Dallas, Texas. Um, it was an outrageous story that, that hit the newspapers, actually, in that local community. And it was about two, uh, a congregation that decided to split into two different churches over a very petty issue. The petty issue had nothing to do with doctrinal standards, nothing to do with theology or vision. It had everything to do with a potluck after a Sunday morning worship service. I, I guess the, the way the issue uh, the issue was rooted. What happened was uh, an elder, an esteemed elder from the congregation was served a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to them. Kid you not, this is true. This really happened. Sadly, this outrageous and embarrassing story was reported in the newspaper the next day for all of Dallas to, to be able to, to see and hear and, and laugh about. Friends, can you imagine how the people of Dallas 
received that story in their newspaper about this church that divided over some petty issue like the size of a slice of ham? You know, as as, uh, uncomfortably embarrassing as this story is, probably the worst thing it did was it brought great discredit, not necessarily only to that local church, but really to the name of Jesus Christ. Church, why is it that the tiniest, pettiest issues can sometimes cause the greatest problems in a local congregation, right? If it isn't the size of a slice of ham at a church potluck, maybe it's the color of carpet or the color of the paint on the wall or the font size in the bulletin or how loud the preacher speaks when he shares on a Sunday morning. I mean, you think of all the great issues that the church has dealt with over the millennia, right? The Reformation, the early years of persecution in Rome. Heck, even the persecution now that's taking place in China and South America and in other places in Southeast Asia, you think of all of those issues that the church has persevered through by the power of the Holy Spirit, only for the church to get subverted and defeated from within. Just so you don't think that all these issues that plague the church, these petty, tiny issues that plague the church only happen in American Christianity. It happens all over the place. Here's an uh, article that, that caught my interest out of a Welsh, Welsh newspaper over in the UK uh, pertaining to a church that was trying to, to um, discern their next pastor. Listen to how this article unfold, unfolded. It said, yesterday the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout over the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang to each side, trying to drown out the other side. Then the groups began shouting at each other, holding their Bibles in anger. The Sunday morning service turned in to Bedlam. The article was titled with this uh, headline, Hallelujah, Two Jacks in One Pulpit. (laughs) Yet another good laugh for the people of the UK. You know, friends, it wouldn't be so sad if it wasn't actually true, right? I mean, how many churches divided, broken apart, people left embittered over silly issues like the size of a slice of ham at a church potluck or two pastors duking it out from behind the pulpit? Friends, do you realize that though we'd like to cast stones at our culture for subverting people away from a life with Jesus, I do it all the time. I pick on American culture all the time. I do it. And though we like to cast stones at culture, many of the gravest dangers and threats to the church today come from within, come from our relationship with one another. Theologian Karl Barth so astutely remarked, there is no letter in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. Did you hear that? If you look at Paul's letter to the early church or other authors' letters to the early church, they're written often as a response to something that is going on in that local church or in a community of churches. And so it is with Paul's letter to the Philippians, which, by the way, he's writing from inside of a prison cell trying to endure the dangers of the world outside of the church. You know, in fact, in the paragraph that precedes what I read a moment ago, Paul starts by offering encouragement to the church to stand firm, to persevere when faced with the dangers in the world around us. 
So we went through the, uh, let me, just a quick aside, a digression. We went through the book of Romans in the first two months of the fall. And we talked about how the entire book, as exhaustive as it is, it's a very big book by the Apostle Paul, is rooted in, in Romans 1.16. Call it Paul's thesis statement. This is why Paul's writing the letter. He says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He defines what it is. Well, then he spends 16 chapters in Romans kind of unpacking what that actually means. Well, in Philippians, Paul already assumes this congregation, because he knows them personally, understands what the gospel of God is. It's the power unto salvation. So he goes on to give a different thesis statement to this church. He says, your job, now that you know what the gospel is, is to live a life worthy of that gospel. And then we pick that up in Romans 1, verse 27 and 28. This is what Paul says. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? So that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And you are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but for you, it's evidence of your salvation. Paul absolutely knows, church, from his own experience, that a follower of Jesus Christ, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are contending with a lot of enemies outside of the church that want to knock us off course as we pursue Christ. The devil is shrewd. The devil is cunning. And the devil will latch on to every single one of our growth edges if we let him. The devil will manipulate our emotions. We're seeing that take place right now in our culture and church. The devil will abuse our selfish tendencies to all to disrupt what the Lord is trying to do in our world through the church. Paul knows all of this and therefore he says to the church to stand firm. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Okay, here's the thing. Yes, Paul tells us to stand firm as we face external pressures, right? As they try to subvert our faith, compromise our Christian conviction. But Paul knows that's not enough. You can't stop there. Listen, if the Philippians are to live a life worthy of their heavenly citizenship, if they are to live a life worthy of the gospel, they must allow themselves to not become undone from within the church. Friends, please hear me. We must not only be unified against the common foe outside of us, we must also be unified in heart and mind and in mutual love for one another within the church. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul offers to us his passionate plea for both unity and mutual affection for one another. Uh, so how do we find unity? Paul's going to ask the question. How do we do it? How do we seek the good of each other? Well, Paul says it starts by, by, by mustering the courage to be last. It starts by willing to stoop down and serve one another. And if I could add, not get so worked up if you get a smaller slice of ham at the church potluck next time we have one. Here's what Paul begins by saying. Verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. 
Paul begins this call for unity, this this call for mutual care, this call to to, to be last by offering a motivation for it. Let's call it Paul's fourfold motivation. So in verse verse 1, what Paul is doing for us is he wants us to pause in our lives for a moment and look back and remember. To look back and remember the moment we came to faith in Christ and what we attained through our salvation. Now, Paul's not necessarily sure what other people have gained through their salvation, but he knows what he has gained through his salvation in Christ. And he tells us, what did he attain? Comfort in Christ. He attained consolation from Christ's love. He had gained partnership with God's Spirit. And he attained tender affections and sympathy. Friends, Paul is saying to us, let your recollections of God's power in your life motivate you to stay united and to mutually love one another. After all, it was Christ who gave us his love when our lifestyles were inconsistent with his ways. After all, it was Christ who extended his grace when we were undeserving of it. Right? It was Christ who made us whole by his death on the cross when we were nothing but broken apart. Let this motivation compel you to be united as, as a church, to, to be mutually in love with one another. I have a person in my, my circles, he's been in my circles my whole life, and uh, you could describe his uh, teenage years and early adult years as the prodigal son in Luke 15. He was a hellion. He made life a living hell for himself, for his friends, for his family, most particularly for his mother. Hellion, living hell. However, there was a moment in his life where he was moving in a direction that was going to lead him to an early grave of his own making, mind you. But there was a moment in his life where he was seized by the grace of God. The Lord sought him out. The Lord found him by his amazing grace. And it was like a night-day transformative change in, in this man's life. He was so overwhelmed by God's grace that saved him from that, that, that life of premature death, the life of going nowhere but a dead end. He was so overwhelmed by it that he named his first daughter Grace. Isn't that a great testimony? I'm going to name my daughter what Christ has saved me with. Grace. Now, you think that would make him a gracious person, right? He is one of the most judgmental Christians I have ever known. Unwilling, hear this, to extend the grace to others that God in Christ Jesus first extended him. Like, how easily did he forget, church, the comfort, the consolation, the tender mercies that he had and still has in Christ Jesus? Paul is so emotionally compelling in this, in this moment. He, he has taken the Philippians, and I think subsequently us as readers, back to those grace-filled memories of our own salvation. You know, I think part of this exercise of remembering, it really helps keep the main thing the main thing, doesn't it? Friends, it's not about us. We know that, right? It's about what Christ is doing in and through us. That's the main thing. It is from this vantage point, this position, that I think we can muster up the courage to be last for the sake of unity and for the sake of mutually caring 
for one another. Friends, this is necessary if we're ever going to live lives worthy of the gospel. So if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, what does it take? The first thing it takes is unity. Paul says in verse 2, make my joy complete. How? Let the same mind, let, let, uh, be of the, um, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Did you notice how Paul starts out verse 2 with saying the same mind and then ends with the words of the same mind? He's, friends, he's being redundant on purpose. He is speaking to a life that is dead set on a unified goal. And what's the unified goal for Paul? It's the gospel. Paul is telling the church to be gospel-oriented as it relates to and cares for one another. Church, if the gospel of God is not at the center of everything we do as a local church, then what's the point of it? Can I ask that? What's the point of it? If the gospel's not at the center, there's no other goal, there's no other intent. Friends, our unity as a church is not a togetherness for the sake of togetherness. It's a togetherness for the sake of one dynamic purpose. And that purpose is to connect all to Jesus Christ. Process that for a moment, ask you a question. Let's take some scenarios. Let's look at worship for a second, okay? When we gather on Sunday morning in this space, if our sole purpose is not to connect to the living God, why are we here? Is it to check off a box? We did our good Christian duty? Is it to have our ears tickled? Why, why are we here? Or how about service and mission? Why do we do it? Do we do it because altruism seems to be a popular thing in America today? Do we do it to, again, check off another box? Is it cathartic in nature? Look, I'm not trying to be critical or judgmental. Please don't mishear me. I just need you all to know at Church of the Lakes, everything we do as a church is to live out one dynamic purpose. It's to connect people to Jesus Christ. We seek to do that in worship, in discipleship, in service, in ministry, in stewardship, in fellowship. I could go on and on and on. So, so if, if we're taking Paul seriously here in Philippians 2, then the gospel must be the center of our thinking and the center of every level of ministry in this church. Friends, here's the thing with Paul. He is so passionate about this that he actually has very little regard for himself as long as the church gets this right. Listen to his story. He is in prison on a capital charge. He is awaiting to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. He is chained to a guard, a Roman centurion, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He has been abandoned by his alleged friends. Yet he rested his joy in the gospel of God and found that joy complete if the church lived out their unity in the gospel. That's all the happiness Paul sought. Paul knew that, that, that a people so unified in this one dynamic purpose would not be concerned with petty issues like the size of a slice of ham at a potluck or the color of carpet in a church. Paul knew that a gospel-oriented life was an others-oriented life. How do you live out a life worthy of the gospel? 
has to do with unity. It also has to do with mutual care. Paul is adamant, friends, about mutual care within the church. Listen to what he says. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In humility, regard others as better than yourself. Will you look at the person next to you and say, you're better than me? I'm serious. You're better than me, right? Elias, you're better than me. He has no one to look at. I'm going to look to you. You're better than me, right? Man, humility is not an attractive characteristic virtue in our world today, is it? People look at humility and they make it synonymous with weakness. I don't think humility is weak. No, humility is a posture of strength that is willing to stoop down like Christ did from his throne in heaven. Rivalry, conceit, those are words we know in America, right? Those are words that make America, America. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Rivalry and conceit may be the words of the day in America, but they are an abomination in the church. The rule for the gospel-oriented church is built on humility. We must count other people better than ourselves. Here's a neat story where this plays out in a different realm than church, a science. We all know the name Isaac Newton, right? Man uh, ate his lunch under an apple tree one day and an apple fell off, bopped him in his head, and bam, we just discovered the laws of gravity, right? We know Isaac Newton, please. I hope schools are still teaching Isaac Newton. Uh, we got that discovery, that law of gravity, that, that discovery revolutionized the science world. I mean, Isaac Newton was instantly famous. However, very few people know of somebody that Isaac Newton was indebted to, a man named Edmund Haley. You see, without Haley, you might not know this, but without Edmund Haley, Isaac Newton wasn't Isaac Newton. You see, it was Edmund Haley that would challenge Newton's uh, uh, original notions and get him to really own what what he discovered. It was Edmund Haley who corrected Newton's mathematical errors. It was Edmund Haley who encouraged a hesitant Newton to write down his discoveries and, and, and share them with the world. It was Edmund Haley who actually raised the funds to publish Newton's works even though Newton had the mind to do it himself. Historians call Edmund Haley one of the most selfless examples in the annals of science. Newton was famous. Edmund Haley lived in his shadows. Although he did get his mark after he died. You all know who Edmund Haley is, right? We have a comet named after him. Haley Comet. Comes around every 60, 70 years. Here's the point. Haley remained a devoted scientist who didn't care who received the credit as long as the cause was being advanced. That's what Paul's saying. Friends, we shouldn't care who gets the credit as long as the cause of Jesus Christ is being advanced. I mean, take, take a look at the scriptures. John the Baptist, what did he say of Jesus? He must become great, I must become less. What about Barnabas in the book of Acts? Barnabas was completely content with connecting people to Jesus Christ and then stepping back and letting Peter and Paul take over. How many of the people that we named today in our All Saints Day commemoration, how many of those people felt compelled to stand in the spotlight? Or was it enough to play their role confident 
that the kingdom of God would be advanced and the God Almighty would be glorified. St. Christendom said this, there's nothing so foreign to a Christian than arrogance. Paul understood that. To the Corinthians, he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Therefore, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he says in another place, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Here's the, the practical point I want you all to walk home with today. Do you realize that looking to the interests of other people, okay, is at the heart of godly marriages, godly friendships, godly work, godly community, godly parenting, and a godly church? Let me end with this. The conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked one day, what is the hardest instrument in the orchestra to play? Now, you'd think he'd say first violin, right? After all, they're the principal player. They have to drive the melody forward, keep everybody together. But that's not what he said. He said second violin. Here's his reason. He said, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm... That's a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Paul's signature command, only let your life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. That command, friends, demanded that we stand firm against the threats that we face outside of the church. But it also means we stand firm as we weather the attacks from those within the church. How do we find unity? How do we mutually care for one another? Paul tells us it takes the courage to be last. It takes the courage to be a servant to all. And if I could add, it also takes the realization that it doesn't matter the size of the piece of ham you get at a church potluck. Let us pray. Lord God, we live in challenging times, uh, both outside and within our church. Lord, our culture is so divided and it just seems like everybody wants to be heard but nobody wants to listen. Nobody wants the, or has the courage or desires the courage to be last. So Lord, as your church, will you teach us again what it means to follow you? Lord, may our singular concern and focus and purpose always be to connect other people to your son, Jesus. And may we stay unified and affectionate towards one another in our efforts. Lord, may we be a church that is recognized by those around us for our love for one another. Again, as we seek to fulfill the needs that we see. God, this morning we are, as a congregation, going to have the blessing of coming up to the table and partaking in your body and in your blood. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts in order to do that, uh, to par participate in this sacrament, I just want to give a another moment to pause. And Lord, as we come to a dinner table with clean hands, we need to come to this table with clean hearts. So God, in the midst of this moment, will you please hear the silent confessions of our hearts?
Church, hear the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That proves his love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Praise be to God. Amen.